listening to Dr. Elizabeth Taylor, Liz Taylor of Monash University, and I'm joined today by several students at Monash Art Design and Architecture. I always have to try and remember the acronym. I know it's a good backronym, MADA, and then I'm like, what's the A again? <laughs> anyway, we have several students today, as well as I'm also joined by Laura Aston. Welcome, Laura. Thank you very much. Or welcome back, I should say. So our idea today, we'll get into a, what we're talking about, but first I'd like to introduce our guests. We have three students of, you're all students of urban planning and design, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Starting, let's do it alphabetically, Lachlan Burke. That's me. So I, I'm currently studying in the second year. Our studio this semester is Inclusive Cities, working with Darabin and with Sylvia, we're the co-founders of MAPS, the Monash Association of Planning Students. That's a backronym too, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, we like it to be remembered by the thing itself rather than if it's an acronym, so. So yeah. that's the Association of Students Studying Planning at yes. Monash. Yes, that's yeah. right. So yeah. we've, we're running a few events this year and we've run our worst walk of Melbourne, that was earlier, mm -hmm. um, which was pretty successful. Uh, we've got a good talent for that. And apart from that, I'm also working as a transport planner and movement and place consulting. And Will McIntyre, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a first year in the Urban Planning Design Masters. I previously came from the States and did an Environment and Sustainability Masters at Monash. And my undergraduate background was Biology and Environmental Studies at UCSC. So I've completely shifted from all of this amazing biology stuff to the built environment in urban planning. and. Throughout my life, I've gotten involved in a lot of international development projects, um, both working and as internships, so that's why I'm here, and I'd love to talk about them all. Great. And Sylvia, you are also a, what's the word, co-founder? Yeah, co-founder of, of Monash Association of Planning Students. Yes. Yeah. I'm also a second year um, master's student at Monash with Lockie. Uh, and, well, so I came from a background where I did um, a Bachelor of Arts, and then I would did my honours on uh, film and philosophy. That was fun and I taught for a little while and then decided to pursue my dreams and here I am. Some people would study planning and then have it be their dream to study philosophy. <laughs> Someone out there has done that. We're taking the unconventional <laughs> road maybe, I don't yeah. know. So yeah. to recap, you did philosophy, yeah. you did environment, um, and biology. biology, and what was yours last one? I did development studies as my undergraduate. Right, and somehow you've all ended up with an interest in planning and development. Right place, because mm. yeah. this must be the place. Good <laughs> 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 segue. events that MAPS is organising this year is part of what's called the Festival of Urbanism, which is coming up in early September. It's co-sponsored by University of Sydney, Monash University and the Henry Halloran Trust and it's a yearly series of events and um, usually it's talks and discussions but MAPS this year is running something a bit different. Do you want to, dis Sylvia, can you describe what, what the event yeah, so um, I think for MAPS we started off with events uh, where we held walks and there were free walks that we talked about just any planning or social issues and I think what we really enjoyed is that people from, you're not from planning, just people interested in their city just came and they really enjoyed it and we learned a lot from them so mm. and we, we thought of continuing that uh, but we thought of also doing something a little different so we were asked to um, work on um, the Festival of Urbanism and to come up with an event and we thought we wanted to do a race instead. Mm -hmm. uh, 
slightly faster than a walk. Yeah, uh, definitely <laughs> taking it up a level. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Is that um, not a foot race though? Is it? It's, or it's a race by? Oh, it's a transport. race by anything you want. You mm. could you could use a car. You could use your feet. If you use a bike, you'll probably win. So yeah. uh, we're not just measuring by um, your arrival time that that's going to obviously score you well. We're also measuring your carbon emissions oh. and the calories you burn along the way. That's right. So the more calories you burn and the less carbon you emit, the better you're going to do in the race. Mm. And I think the real challenge is that you can't take your phones with you. Or you can, but rather they're not used. Mm. They can't be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, you'll be using a BYO Melway. Yeah, so, oh, so bring your own Melway. Um, <laughs> we'll, give you, we'll, we'll give contestants a map. No street names, no nothing, just a really bare footprint of all mm-hmm. the buildings. And we'll put the dots of where the different locations are, so they're all historic pubs. Yeah. Um, and we'll give you an address and so your challenge is to find set addresses with a Melway. Just quickly, some of our listeners will not know what a Melway ah, is. Ah, right. So if you're a yes. Melbourne... <laughs> oh, right. I'm, I'm new to Melbourne. Right. So, yeah, if you're a Melbourne local um, or if you've got really enthusiastic driving parents or you really like to go to different places around Victoria, um, you'll have noticed a little uh, book in the corner of your uh, wardrobe or closet or something. Um, you can pick it up, and it, if it has the word Melway on it with a nice red arrow, you know it's the right book. There's an edition every single year, and basically they're um, street directories that are, show a, a lot of different things. They're probably the most successful maps in terms of getting a lot of information in one, mm. one area. Um, and so avid driving fans and avid maps fans um, are lovers of these books. Often people that have studied planning, people I've met throughout my um, working life, have a disproportionate tendency to have collected Melways. There you go. <laughs> yep. So rare editions and things like that's that. That's it. Oh. And so you'll need your own for this race. And so we're offering a promotion of a quarter of the price off. Um, so if you sign up, um, and I think it's ten dollars, yes. um, we'll email you straight away with a promo code mm-hmm. so that you can get your own. 2020 Melway um, at a reduced price. Yeah, and we really want to thank Melway actually for supporting us mm. uh, in this race. So anyone can sign up to yep, be anyone at all. That's right. Yeah. So and you start where? You start at some Federation uh, Square. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's teams of three to six. But if you haven't got yourself a team already, so you know, it could be your your workplace, could be your friends, could be your family, could be anyone, a bunch of students. But if you haven't, um, we've also got a find me a team. Team, mm-hmm. so you can find one on the day. We'll sort you out. How long do you reckon it will take to do this race? Well, was yeah, that giving too much away? Well, no, um, no. We could we could say definitely that you probably would get it done in three hours. Can you ask <laughs> people for directions? I guess absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you can ask locals for directions. Right. Yeah. They probably won't know. Yeah. yeah, you can rock up in the suburb and you know look yeah. for it. There's any number of ways you could tackle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. what's the prize apart from you know getting to know your city better and. Yes, that's Definitely. right. Yeah, so our, our grand prize is for the winning team, every member will receive a $50 pre-topped up Mikey, so free travel for about a week and a half. Mm. The next team will win $40, and the third team will win $30 yeah. of a Mikey. But, you know, the whole cliche, everyone's a winner. Um, that's right. towards the end, at our end point, everyone gets a free cocktail reception. Yeah, oh. so food, food for all. Just got to find it. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> I guess that is the prize, isn't it? If you know yeah. where you're going, you're going to get food at the end of it. <laughs> so that's the maps. What's the name of it again? The urban Orienteering? Or Quick, Quick Maps. Quick Maps. Is that a, is that a reference to something? Quick Maps? But I think in this it refers to whipping out your street directory as fast as you can, frantically going, ah, uh, Yeah. Yep, and you know the number. I mean, I when I was first living in Melbourne, my whole life fitted on the red pages of the Melways, which is the inner suburbs part of the Melways. Awesome. And, and I can't almost remember it was like page twenty eight or twenty nine. It's like 
if you wanted to go to a party or you're thinking about renting a house or something, it's like, no, it's not even on page 49. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the edge of the known universe. a bit more about why you chose to study urban planning and design because you went from philosophy to your dream yeah I think what what really got me thinking about urban design and then urban planning uh, was it was quite simple as just listening to a TED talk so I think I watched one by Amanda Burden and she was um, oh actually I'm jumping a few steps ahead sorry (laughs) I'll just talk about the the initial one which is Mm. I was in a sociology lecture and the lecturer was talking about hostile architecture and it was just a whole new world for me because I was just like, I didn't realise all these things and I started to see net, like urban features and how it affects people, like the, the way people behave. Hmm. Yeah, and then, so jumping back to Amanda Burden and TED Talks. But yeah, um, so, yeah, and then I, like basically she just introduced the whole idea of urban design and planning and then that's when I was like, this is a thing. And, and then I decided to check it out and here I am. Yeah. And Will, do you want to sort of expand on your jump from biology to... Or environment to yeah. planning. Yeah, so initially... It's not a huge jump, I guess. But yeah, yeah, it's not a huge jump. In the context of my undergrad, I started off as a pure biology major. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my internships was when I went to Mongolia to look at um, air quality and was almost employed in a development firm there. And mm-hmm. I realized, I'm like, oh, I don't want to be in a, in a lab for the rest of my life. I want to be working where I love working. And I realized like, oh, I could do environmental studies because that's a kind of, in the school that I was doing, it's a lot of combination between how the environment interacts with um, humans and everything else and economics. And part of that, and then I was, my, just, I lived all in um, all these different countries and the internships I did mainly dealt with international development. And I looked at going, well, I can't really apply all these environment interventions like solar panels and green roofs and reticulated water and, uh, uh, wetlands all through cities if I have no idea how a city works mm. and I would I just realized I'd be doing more harm than good to both the environment and um, the people living in these cities if I just kind of forged ahead and just like ah oh, plonk all of these green things in there and I was just like well I need I need these skills mm. and so here I am cool. <laughs> so it's both it's sort of scaling up yeah yeah, yeah. definitely I certainly empathize with that sense that you need to know how the city works and how it planning works to be able to implement anything. I'm also an environmental engineer and now I'm studying public transport and uh, having an understanding of how to implement things that target, you know, making our cities more sustainable. You do need to have an appreciation of how planning works, how it gets done. So I'd be interested to ask you when you reach the end of your (laughs) studies if if you uh, come to a new understanding or you feel more empowered to be able to go and actually implement these things. Yeah, I wonder if they'll have more answers than questions. Mm, that's what I'm worrying. I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm worrying a little bit. It's like, yeah. I try to resist it, but there's a tendency within planning education to sort of reach the conclusion that it's all very complicated yeah. and more research needs to be done, yeah. <laughs> so, which isn't exactly yeah. practical. So part of the idea of today's podcast, as well as introducing maps and yeah. the uh, quick maps race and the Festival of Urbanism, was the tie-in to another event at the Festival of Urbanism, which then will... I'll um, segue to you, Lachlan. That's the sound of me unfolding this ridiculously large pamphlet, (laughs) which is also like a throwback to Melway's 
Um, <laughs> you know, like where we had to get people had to read the newspaper on a train and like yeah. pull the whole oh, thing out. Yeah. That's the pamphlet for the Festival of Urbanism. One of the talks is donor-driven tsunami housing in Sri Lanka: resident outcomes and experiences. So it's going to be a talk by a guest uh, visiting scholar from Sri Lanka. Name? Can you pronounce it? Lachlan? Yeah, Rangajiwa. Yes. So I, as I understand it, Lachlan, you went on one of our studios to Sri Lanka and worked there. I did. So yeah. it was a studio run, uh, ran by Rangajiwa. Um, okay, just see, what's a studio? What's sure, 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 sure. <laughs> um, so it was an opportunity for study um, in Sri Lanka in a, a program that uh, was offered by the University of Moratua and was obviously a lot longer than our two-week kind of um, visit. Um, but our opportunity was to be a part of that for the two weeks. Um, and what we managed to achieve in, in, in that time was uh, a field study. Um, so we got to look at Turkey Village Mitagama, um, which is a Turkish-sponsored post-tsunami resettlement. Um, and so we... That's a series of words I've never heard. Oh, right. So... Uh, the, so after the tsunami on, on Boxing Day, there was a, a big push, uh, I think partly um, assisted by PR in Australia, to um, have a better set of planning guidelines around um, making sure that there wasn't as much devastation the next time there was a tsunami. So part of that meant that uh, there's, a, there's now buffers, um, mm -hmm. especially areas to the south, um, and the number, uh, precise number escapes me. but. Things like should be elevated um, on a on a mountain would be ideal, um, and also um, a, a fair bit inland. Um, and so this particular settlement was sponsored by the Turkish government. There's uh, 450 houses, uh, and what we discovered upon going there, so we did a bit of a, a site study. We had a, took you know some photos and did a bit of modelling. Um, they did some really impressive um, physical models, um, which which were really cool. I got to see some photos. Um, and we got to do a survey as well. Uh, and so the survey revealed to us that a lot of people had sold on their housing and they moved back, <laughs> which is an interesting consequence. So they sold on their new elevated housing. That's right, yeah, moved back somewhere else. Yeah, so a lot of the people there um, had since occupied the housing um, weren't actually uh, directly affected in that way from the tsunami, but instead bought into it because it was more affordable housing. Oh. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so um, the things we kind of um, saw were there's um, a, re a real lack of service, especially with things like water. So you only get water for about half an hour, twice a week. Oof. I was um, going to say a day. Some, a some at higher elevation only get half an hour a day. That's uh, half an hour in a week. Which yeah. Do you know which times they'll be? No. Which times? Yeah. yeah, so I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. So they did know. Yeah. You don't just wait there next to the tap the whole time. No, no, no. They do so know and they, and they store it. They have fridges and things. Oh, yeah. um, electricity goes out a lot. Um, the transport is down to the south um, and walking conditions are quite shocking to get there. Um, so a lot of people don't, don't use that, that bus um, and that obviously has a big dramatic consequence for their transport costs. So. Mm. So the slogan here, I've got written, build back better. Whose mm. slogan is that? So I think that was the uh, the planning uh, kind of ethos, if yeah. you like. So to make sure that um, this didn't happen ever again mm. um, in, and have the same disastrous consequences, that we would be really careful with prescribing the buffers um, and, and uh, guidelines. Um, but I, I think our um, investigation showed in the process that there's a lot of other things to get right as well. So if things are at higher elevation, then it's, you've got to make sure that they're positioned in a way to receive water, <laughs> you know, decently. 
because um, if they're higher than the water tower, for example, that becomes really energy inefficient because they're not relying on gravity, they're relying on electricity. Right. So the rollout of those services has to be managed effectively as well. So in some ways, have I mean, things have been funded, roads, hospitals, schools, houses, mm-hmm. post-tsunami, but mm-hmm. have other things gotten worse or is it more... Um, well, yeah, I, I suppose uh, in the limited time that I was there, um, I could only see just that one village. Uh, so in, there, there were local services like hospitals. Uh, there's a, a local market in Wellagama. So they're all reasonably accessible by, um, by cars and things. Um, but I suppose like the whole, I think what you're getting at, like the whole paradigm or the whole dynamic is quite difficult for people to get used to. I suppose that's partly the reason why a lot of them just sold on their houses and went, you know, I'll go back to the lifestyle that I... So they had. went back to mm. what is officially a buffer zone. Well, that? so, yeah, they sold on... So they got their house um, mm-hmm. compensated because of, you know, um, that they lost their, their last one um, with an understanding that they would stay there. And uh, instead, um, they decided that it would suit their lifestyles more conveniently if they were able to sell that house on um, and use that uh, income that they received to go live in a lifestyle similar to what they had before. And did you feel like what you learnt in Australia is really transferable in that context. Yeah, my previous study in ANU really, really uh, pushes this idea. I think we alluded at it uh, a little bit a while ago, but it's just too complicated. It's really complex. Mm -hmm. Um, And one one of the key kind of warnings and the key cautions that you learn over and over and over again in the degree is um, uh, don't assume you know everything, make sure you listen, be very, very careful, you know, uh, especially with cultural sensitivities. So things like oh, we can't just ask people their income. We can't just, you know, budge into their houses and go, oh, well, tell us your income, tell us your expense, tell us this, did you sell the house, did you this, are you this? And w- with that expectation, being really cautious, it was really surprising to see that people go, oh, my income is X. Oh, my expenses are X. Blank mm-hmm. face, oh, I'll let you in my house, I'll give you water, I'll give you anything, I'm, it's cool, you know? Mm. Just a real understanding that we're from university, we're asking some questions, that's cool, yeah, I can give you precise answers. It was very kind of shocking, really. Mm. And it was also the same experience going into Kunjakul recently. Yes. That people um, have a lot less of this sort of sensitivity, and, you know, uh, granted in, in specific contexts than I was previously warned about. Will, you have experience in many different countries, right? Yeah. You were saying before you actually grew up partly in... The Philippines, yeah. yeah. And did you mention Sri Lanka as well? I was in Sri Lanka as a kid as well as Tonga and the Cook Islands. Right. A little bit all over the South Pacific, Asia. Um, yeah. Were your parents working in... Yeah, so my yeah. father works in um, the Asian Development Bank. And so we... Initially, he was a consultant based in Australia. And I'd kind of go for a couple months a year as he travelled, if there was the project was too long. And then eventually we moved to the Philippines, to the Central Asian Development Bank, um, office and then we were in the Philippines for a number of years before I went to my undergraduate. So do these, the sensitivities or lack thereof that Lachlan referred to, it's all context specific, right? Very context. I've had that experience of being uh, people that I've worked with in in certain um, projects that I've worked on be, oh yeah, we'll just give you that, like come in, we'd love to have you, like very, very cooperative Mm -hmm. um, because they want a better life, they want the things that we're giving them and a lot of the time consultancies and international development specialists are very good at kind of manipulating this like, oh, you're going to have a better life. We can guarantee you, you're going to have mm. a better life. And mm. in some cases, that's not the case. Or if it is, it's very time lagged. Sure. Yeah. And other places I've worked on have had a number of consultancies or a number of aid groups come in and promise these things. And they're kind of at the point where they're like, 
we're just sick of it. Mm. We, um, yeah. We'll give you the context. There's, yeah. there's a term for it. I think it's called development fatigue. Yeah, exactly. When you, <laughs> so many fatigue. so many people coming promising the moon yeah. and they go, oh, just go away. Yeah. Like anything that you do yeah. isn't going to be better than what we've got. Yeah. yeah. And, and is it, that part of it partly a lack of evaluation, or is is the way the money comes in that's a sort of the juggernaut? Come, what's your reading of it? Why? It really depends. So. Part of my um, environment and sustainability masters, we looked at some projects in Africa, and there is one that uh, we're analyzing was with um, engineers abroad or engineers without borders based in the U.S. And the pro- the town had actually had six different development uh, things for wells come in, <laughs> and the one. Uh, I shouldn't laugh because I'm sure it's important. It's, it's, re- it it's just really the things bad. on the it's TV just, yeah. as well. It's like, and then we dug a well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so in this context, they uh, the one before them had not done a hydrological analysis yeah, of the right. town at all because it's it's very time consuming, mm. it's very cost in- intensive, yeah. and that aid agency didn't have that resources. They didn't have the engineers, um, and all of that they dug them. Um, some of them collapsed. Others were flooded mm. and then contaminated, and then others were just they weren't. Um, the bore wasn't created properly, and so the entire thing was just full of cholera, uh, of bacteria. Wow. And so none of them were usable, and so then the engineers with that borders had to come in and change some of them, and then make some of them more sustainable, and tried to look at their monitoring and evaluation to see how it is a couple of years later. And sure. it was very hidden, so oh, I don't really know right. how exactly it, it seemed like it was going well, but yeah. mm. it's tough. You mentioned engineers without borders, and I was going to ask a question about whether the intentions or the approaches of these aid organisations and consultancies that presumably come in with the best of intentions. Engineers Without Borders, they put an emphasis on user-centred design yeah, of yes, their work. Is yeah. that the, and you said they were successful. So has that played a role, perhaps, in, in their success? Um, in that case that I analysed, it seemed like it was. Yeah. But I, And I think, to, to your question, it's not really... It's maybe not the consultants that are coming in with a negative viewpoint. Like they're genuinely trying to help. I think as mm-hmm. both of us found, yeah. we're genuinely trying to help. But the aid organization, the greater aid organization, um, it may be at a too large of a context to understand sure. that impacts of funding directly impact the people on the ground very negatively. Mm-hmm. Like if you if a project isn't funded um, in time or if it's yeah. just kind of kicked around for years and years, sure, that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Because you see a lot of success with um, development companies that are able to stay on the ground a exactly, little longer. Yeah. Um, and so the ethos of one that I've just recently worked with, Bridging Lanka, is that they, they try to have as much of a 50-50 as they can. So that means that um, the aid organisation comes in with, you know, um, sporadic kind of, you know, flashes of um, volunteering and, and donor support. Um, but what they try and establish is 50% of um, staff from the local area, volunteers from the local area, committees um, that are going to deliver the projects from the local area um, in their own communities. So, for example, with the Coolum project, the Urban Improvement Project in Manor, um, one of the first priorities is to get a, a committee up and started and mm-hmm. give um, a local contract to someone who's, who's got the skills within the, the village because we're going to come and go, mm-hmm. but at least if there's some kind of... Um, community-run um, accountability, then yeah, it's got some... Definitely. Yeah. The community engagement, community ownership, to, is from what we found, is the most important aspect of that project. So the Engineers Without Borders one, they were actually contacted by a, um, a women's group in that town who were taking charge of the water because they are just kind of sick of it. They are like, yeah. we can't deal with this contaminated water anymore. And they contacted the Engineers Without Borders and basically started setting up this women's water committee. And it seemed like it was working highly successfully in other projects that I've worked Excellent. in. The the community ownership and then um, so like either 
people in the project are sourced from the community, so either like project managers or um, yeah, or the, the translators as well as we're, I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah. It's like the translators' role becomes less of a translator and more of a cultural ambassador and. Mm-hmm. A lot more multifaceted than just a strictly translator role. Sure. And is this something that's changing? Do you think, optimistically speaking, that own- community ownership is becoming more of a thing, or is it just sporadically some projects have it or not? I think so. I think a lot of the large aid aid organisations are starting to understand that this is a, a critical aspect of the success of a project. Mm. If there's no community buy-in, community engagement, or at least a an understanding on the same level as the aid agency, there's never going to be a project that works into the long term and I think mm. sure. the amount of money that's in a lot of some of these projects that long term sustainability and feasibility they, they want mm. and so does the community sure. everyone wants that same thing it's just working out how that common language is formed yeah because I suppose in, in many kind of, of these contexts it goes just beyond the you know the the idealistic. Oh yes, let's let's engage the community just for the sake of it. But yeah. it goes further because the administrative processes, or even the resources behind those administrative processes, isn't quite as strong as they are here. So, for example, if you're a consultant, um, and so you know, uh, at Movement a Place, we do a lot of work where we'll we'll deliver something to um, council or um, you know another client, and there's kind of this expectation that. All right, so there's our, there's our advice, you know, I'm happy to, to help with any other further steps, but, you know, there's enough accountability within this system for it now to happen without any more support. In these contexts, it, it's, I, th- I think if you applied the same thinking, you'd be really disappointed and you'd probably, you wouldn't have a very good outcome because you'd have the expectation that that's okay, there's, um, there's enough accountability out there and there just, there just isn't. You, yeah. you really have to see it over the line to see it happen. Um, because no, yeah, it's almost a point of no one else will help or no one yeah. else will do it. <laughs> so mm. international development projects are kind of struggling with this accountability question. It's mm. like when you have six different nationalities working on a project of like the funders from one country, the, de- the actual development agency is from another, the consultants are from another, the contractors are from a different country. Yeah. working in the community in one country that's made up of different community, uh, different nationalities within that community. Who's in charge of that's what it. happens? Yeah. And it seems to be an, an industry, if that's the word, that's um, propelled by almost a, uh, a compulsion to hide stuff like that because it's it's a good news story most of the yeah, time. That's well, how you get money come in. That's right. Well, I mean, there is definitely that, um, that uh, what would you call an outcomes kind yes. of mm. focus. Um, and so, and you're, you're absolutely right, you know, it's easier to say um, you know donate us invest in us because we'll give you a good return not in the sense that you'll get your money back but you'll get the sense of you get to feel good because we get the job done and here's how we have all these indicators but that's not necessarily bad as an approach but um, you know like I think I think what we're alluding to is that um, you know Um, there's more to it. It strikes me that, say, like if it's true that greater community ownership is important and that's increasing, they almost, the organisations have a bit of a catch-22. They don't want to admit that the way they were doing before didn't work necessarily. So they have to come up with a way of spinning it, if that's mm. the way. Yeah, um, it's a bit, yeah. Yeah, it must yeah. be a bit like that. Yeah. Mm. It depends on the, there's always been, from my point of view, there's always been a, an emphasis on community development with certain people within aid, aid organisations. Mm-hmm. There's always champions for yeah. a future, more progressive way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's as those people move throughout the development sphere, mm-hmm. whether that's getting implemented or not. So someone may go, we're going to do this community development. It's going to be an amazing project. And it starts getting that, those legs under it. 
and then unfortunately they may have to move because they also sure. want a career trajectory mm-hmm. and then it goes on to the next person who also wants to go well I want my career to be better and beneficial and I want to propose my own new project so this project kind of gets sidelined mm-hmm. and the funding starts to slowly dry sure. up and then the champions who are leading this amazing progressive thing kind of just gets put to the wayside and then rubber stamp finished yeah. but left unfinished on the ground and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and what's the main thing really that that development organizations bring into this context they bring money they bring skills is it knowledge i but mean what's the what's the real no yeah, big question hey yeah um it depends on the people working yes, on you it. guys right. went uh to offer yourselves as a resource mm. and yeah that's what we we did a calculation of um what, what would it look like if the volunteer hours were costed <laughs> so <laughs> we just applied our, our yeah. consultant charge out rates and it's yeah. like wow well i feel really good now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know um i have to say that the ones that i've uh, ever been a part of are ones that are well are either committed to a short-term project that they finish mm-hmm. or the one recently is one that's just there it's always there it's it's always looking for projects to do it's got a base in manner people come and go um, but there's a local staff which is always present yeah. there's local committees that are always there um, so uh, I don't know I, I have to say that I'm, I'm way into that kind of a space where you can see things getting done um, and you can be a part of things getting done. I haven't been, I I wouldn't know, I haven't witnessed or been a part of once where, you know, things fall by the wayside or things don't get done. (laughs) And do you learn from the experience? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listening and just really not expecting things, you know. Um, And when you leave, you've you've all, like uh, with this last one, it was really just, uh, oh, I I feel like I just need to stay there. Like I feel like I've got to do way more stuff. And, um, you know, uh, the, the people with me, the directors, they uh, kind of say, you always feel like that. You'll yeah. always feel like, you know, there's more you could be doing. So yeah. maybe we could go back. expectations yeah I think so definitely um, Mongolia had a, a valuer and then like um, you had some like historians and you had people in economics and finance and then cultural studies and then you had architects and designers and um, a limited urban planning thing and all of these um, groups working together and other ones um, I mean I think the Monash um, project rise the revitalization of informal settlements in their environment project that one has so many disciplines and so many different people and the whole structure of the program is designed to facilitate that it's interdisciplinarity. And that was the first project that I really saw that actually happening and happening in a way that produced tangible results mm-hmm. um, that you could document. Because a lot of places like, oh, we're very interdisciplinary. We have all these people. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of siloing going on. Sure. Um, yeah. And like, as an intern, you're kind of like, oh, I'm very confused as to how I'm actually bridging these gaps or working with these different people and um, wow. yeah there's a lot of I think it's it's like um, the community development it's becoming a more understood topic and I think international aid agencies are very well placed to look at this because their um, projects always have a variety of different specialists you have like water specialists working with um, redevelopment specialists mm-hmm. or social safeguards and um, or gender specialists more recently and it's there's always been this interdisciplinarity in the private sector Mm-hmm. Um, how documented and how well it's worked is up for debate, but it's always been there, recently at least. 
You mentioned translation before. Yeah. Was that communication aspect um, something you expected, and what were the challenges there? Yeah. Um, so in, in, for the RISE project in Indonesia and in Fiji, we had some community translators, and we had people. We'd already had contacts in each of these countries who spoke the languages that we were working in, and but we did a lot of community visioning, and getting um, the locals to kind of express to us what they want and how they. Th- um, what the community look like and the problems that are happening, it's very difficult to do across the language barriers, especially when you have 30 people mm. translating through one translator. It's difficult to do when Sorry. there isn't a language barrier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I think, so the first trip that I did earlier this year with Sri Lanka, um, our, our last task was to do a reflection, and I, mm. I historically hate doing reflections because <laughs> fun, but my whole thing was, um, ah, is it culture? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Is it language? Yeah, that's what it is. It's language. It's not just English to Tamil, English to Sinhalese. It's um, transport planning to someone who's not a transport planner. It's I'm from Australia and I understand these things about transport planning, but you're in Sri Lanka and you understand these things about transport planning. Um, I had a conversation with uh, a girl from the University of Moratua, like a student, and um, and that was the first part of the year. We just we went through a town and and she went, ah, oh, yeah. So parking's obviously a huge issue, and, and you know it's pretty pretty abundantly clear. Um, there's about three rows of um, there's no lines either. There's no parking yeah. lines. Just three Inside rows of talk talks, and mm-hmm. I have no idea how they get them out. It's like um, you know those jokes where you've got the car boxed in and they can't get yeah. out. You know, and someone lifts it out and the oh, That's it. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It was it was that crazy. And mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of uh, stuff on the roads. Not necessarily as well regulated, so they're quite mm-hmm. smoggy. Um, and she she said, um, yeah, so parking's an issue. And I went, yeah, it looks like an issue. Um, does anyone live in the town centre in, in this town centre? No, of course not. They live. Mm-hmm in the hills they live elsewhere and I went okay and she said yeah well you know why would you want to live here and I'm like because then you wouldn't have to drive so then you probably would have less of a parking issue yeah but no one would want to live here I'm like well why not oh because of the noise the pollution and I'm like yeah because the cars <laughs> which wouldn't which wouldn't be here but there was even that getting across she was thinking oh of course I mean of course you know I um, have that here that's exactly right that. yeah and you know and, and it was my bad not going Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. So no one's ever going to conceive in their in, in their minds. Oh, of course I'll make the first. Because imagine being the first guy to live in the city. That's miscommunication, you know. Um, and it happened a lot uh, in the recent survey I took. So I, I got I got the um, chance, the opportunity to do a um, a transport study in this isolated rural area called Kunjukulam, which is about an hour away from Manor uh, in the north, and. Um, even just uh, talking to, because I think this is the first kind of time that Bridging Lunk has um, considered, you know, transport as a thing to get involved in. So even just talking to the boss, who is from Australia, who's done a lot of plan. well, he's, he's from Sri Lanka originally, but he's done a lot of planning in Australia, in Brisbane. Even just talking to him, saying things like, oh yeah, headway, headway, uh, service, service, you know, things like that. He mm-hmm. goes, what's that, what's that, you know, mm-hmm. you need to make that clear. And especially because, not just to me, but to the community who you just surveyed, they need to know exactly what these terms mean. So I really relied heavily on graphics, and even then there's lots of things that I haven't got quite right. So, oh, what do those circles mean? Oh, that's the area you can get to in a certain amount of time. They're called isochrones. Okay, well, you need to make that more clear, you know? Um, things that if I showed anyone in, you know, here in Movement and Place Consulting, they'd be like, oh, what a great way to show how to get to a place in time, you know, because they're from the same discipline. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, even challenging the universality of graphics, yeah, you know, definitely. yeah, it's just so many, and you just keep discovering all these new layers of language barriers and you're just like, 
How do you, yeah, so. It goes back to what you said initially about asking questions in that you don't want to make the assumption that you can do something a certain way. Exactly right. Go in and, I guess, be humble and just. Absolutely. That I think definitely could be part of the role of the consultants, like what they bring is sometimes pushing the local, like the local community to go, what can you change? Like there's different ways of doing things that, Mm -hmm. Um, that we've never considered and you never considered, but let's work together to discover those. Yeah. I think increasingly that's sort of the way that a lot of people are trying to work with. Like that's how it. do we move to these new environments that are that are understood across these contexts? And certainly I think in my last experiences, I, I think another thing that kind of blew my mind is because you're cautioned always about no one's going to be involved in your idea from the start. You know, it's going to be a really, really intense struggle of you really listening and you really engaging and you know uh, and that's planning right that's, yeah. but that's context. it that's exactly right but but you, you go there and i was starting to see just how ready people are to go oh cool that sounds good oh what do i need to do for that yeah. you go oh right oh well yeah i hadn't even got that far yet but yeah okay so for example we were looking at some informal uh, opportunities um to solve that isolation um in terms of transport and even just talking to the driver he didn't rule out a, oh, no, 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 I'm not reducing my prices and going regularly every week to make sure everyone gets a, you know. He, it was totally open. He said, as long as I'm able to make ends meet, as long as I'm able to make this cost to pay my finances a month, I, I'm interested. And I was like, wow. And pe- when you show people your designs for, so these pond areas, these coolums, um, we're trying to, in manner, there's a big um, uh, kind of push for people to have their own private spaces. So... Um, these Coolum areas historically have been these huge ponds that people used to get around and um, bathe in and you know spend really good good time in. Um, at the moment, they're being encroached, so people illegally encroached by what? Sorry. So yeah. people just have their houses and they go, uh. you know what? Let's move my fence back a bit. We have a bit of, bit of a bigger backyard. In fact, I think I want a toilet block. You know, and they just mm-hmm. gradually encroach. There's no accountability mm-hmm. mechanisms to say why not. And it's kind of not in the paradigm to think no, that's a public space. I'm going to leave that. Because it's, if you, you go there, you go, this isn't a public space. You know, it's just, just a big water area, you know. Mm-hmm. And when it dries up, it's like it's just land. So we're trying to really, you know, get, get that kind of thinking of, no, 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 if we all move our things back and we beautify the area, you'll want to be here. You'll want to spend time and share it with other people. Like, that's, you know. Um, and they've done a, a pretty decent job with a few of them. UN, UN Ops has helped with one as well. Um, but even when you show people the design and say, this is what it could look like, People are on board. People are like, oh, righto. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, if you push your fence back, that'd really help. Okay, I can do that. Um, you know, we can even pay you to offset the costs a little bit because we know it's not cheap to put a concrete wall back. And they go, yeah, that sounds good. Not all the time, but way more than I would think possible. So what have been the main takeaways or the changes that you now want to implement through your planning studies and undertakings from these experiences? Um, I suppose with Darabin, um, I'm especially keen to continue to hone my graphic skills to see just how far I can push, you know, the universality in terms of especially the discipline. Because if you think about a picture, um, it already, you would hope, um, gets past the barrier of, um, you know, linguistics. Jargon. Well, yeah, you'd hope, you know. Um, So you'd think that the first step would be that someone from any other country could look at it and go, that's a heat map. What was what is the heat map for? Heat maps for heat. <laughs> you know, for example, it's like oh, that's pretty easy. Red means it's hot. Blue means it's not hot. Mm-hmm. Whatever language the word hot is doesn't matter. You know, so you'd hope that 
with that first done just by having a graphic in the first place that you could then start to go, okay, how do I make this clear to someone who isn't a transport planner? Mm -hmm. How do I make it clear to someone who may be a transport planner but from a different context in, in terms of the thinking? So that's what I'm really keen to explore with um, Inclusive City with the Darabin Level Crossing project. Do you think you also have like local, the local community that is rather active and yeah, quite right. experienced actually in the Very planning true. system, mm -hmm. especially people from Darabin? Ian Woodcock's piece the other day, I forget what it was called, but his whole thing was to challenge that by saying, well, if you walk people through their different options mm -hmm. and you're able to very clearly express to them the plethora of ideas that there are, people are really, really happy to, to cooperate and people often find those um, setups way easier to navigate and you mm -hmm. end up having a, a much better response and a much yeah. better outcome. And I think that is the onus on us, mm. is to try and get to that point where you can not come in necessarily with an outcome in mind, mm -hmm. but come in with what we do have to offer, perhaps a bit more perspective, who knows, mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, and can we walk it through, walk people through it? Not so, manipulate them yeah. through it, but actually yeah. try to get a shared vision of what we want rather than adversarial. Mm -hmm. As funny as I find though, my whole bread and butter is <laughs> oh, documenting <laughs> terrible fights. <laughs> Yes, I agree. Car it can be, it can and should be done better. Yeah. But to wrap things mm. up, Will, did you have a, a takeaway from what you've worked on overseas? Yeah, I think the Rise one really showed me the the need for interdisciplinarity, and then some of the work that I was doing in the the last semester on we did a looking at colonization on Mars, and so it really struck home for me that there's there's a lot of potential future um, solutions that we can do, and. There's so many different specialists and different ways of knowing, and there's a little way that we can put these into, we can implement these in a lot of different countries, but we need the information and knowledge to be out there. And the, the, there needs to be translation of, of, actual translation of words, but also of knowledge between all these groups, between separate organizations, with, and then within our own teams. Like, you can't have an engineer working and engineering and not explaining to the ecologists what actually is gonna happen. Um, so that's something that I like, would really love to see more of in the international development and something that I'm working on as my own um, academics is like making sure that we kind of know how the broad scale of international development and then implementing that. What do we have in cities like Melbourne that we take for granted that you realise more? I mean water is the one that's bringing Data. to mind. Data. <laughs> Not having to ask every single person. <laughs> <laughs> having secondary data. Yeah. Having a, having a yeah, census every few years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's just a given here. That's really Well, nice. it's not a given, no. That's no. true. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, not everyone. Really but nice. it is very important. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it's advocating really nice. for it. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's a public transport. Like, right. even just coming from the US, like, my school didn't have a very robust public transport. Like, I couldn't go to San Francisco from my school. Mm. Wow. On it would take me three or four hours. And how far transport. was it? Like, uh, le less than Clayton to the city. Wow. Right, but yeah, so it's that's something that I like. I love about Melbourne. Like, oh yeah, I can actually take. I, I don't own a car, so I'm just like mm -hmm. public transport everywhere for all of my daily needs and everything, and it works perfectly. But I could not do that in the states. It would just it's prohibitive, and all throughout Asia, it's it's for people who do. There's there definitely is informal public transport solutions, and yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, we do do something right. I think <laughs> our other American guest, remember Laura Nick? He was like. He came from somewhere that... He's from Boston, yeah. and yeah. it's refreshing to hear that we do have a public transport system that we shouldn't take for granted, right. because yeah. often we do complain about it. And, yeah. and Monash is a unique global university with um, somewhat 
difficult access out to the Clayton campus, mm. but yeah. uh, it's good to be reminded that yeah. we've got a network that you can exactly. get around yeah. on if you want to. It's a, and one that you don't necessarily that isn't necessarily working on whether they make back everything from yeah, fairs. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm. 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 Having it still understood as a public yeah. at least in part yeah. system. Yeah, these are things that can be taken away that we do take for granted. I suppose. But then I guess the challenge is how do you actually transfer that kind of yeah. shared, or what would you call it? It's mm. more like an institutional commitment to something. Sure. You can't come in as an individual and yeah. give that to people. But yeah. I'm also thinking, could we have some people from Sri Lanka come here? Oh, guess we're having our talk, our speaker at mm-hmm. the Festival of Urbanism. But I would like, you know, a group of Sri Lankans to come here and tell me how to improve mm. my house. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we learn a lot. Ask you some questions yeah. about your income. And I'd rather, I'd rather <laughs> yeah. pay them. That would feel a bit weird otherwise. Yeah. Any other things you'd like to add before we wrap up? Nope. Oh, All right. Um, so thank you to Lachlan Burke. Thank you. Will McIntyre, Sylvia Tongs, and of course to Laura, my co-host. Always a pleasure. So if you want to find out more about post-disaster recovery in Sri Lanka, you can attend one of the talks at the Festival of Urbanism this year. It's starting on the 2nd of September. I can't remember the date of the Sri Lanka one. But the I think it's on the 2nd. All right, on the 2nd of September, festivalofurbanism.com if you want to find out more. And if you want to go in the maps or urban orienteering contest as well, you go to that website as well. That's on the 6th, is it? The 7th of September, 7th. on the Saturday. Saturday yep. the 7th of September. Yes. Okay. I'd love to do this maps race in Sri Lanka as well. All right, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to This Must Be